Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and this is where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page, Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to empower and inspire a community of people who take every opportunity to live a high-performing life. As 2023 begins, Reconditioning is excited to be able to offer to you a hybrid model of learning with live labs all over the country and starting this year in the United States as well. So if you're a U.S. listener and you've been waiting to do reconditioning, we're going to be down your way this year. So we have a whole series of dates booked Starting in February in Montreal with our R1 Foundations, we have an R2 in March, then we're going to be out in BC in um, May, we're going to be out in Halifax in Nova Scotia in late April, we're going to be uh, down in um, Grand Rapids, Michigan in June, and we have a whole host of dates booked for the fall. So if you've been waiting to take reconditioning and to upgrade your professional capacity and bring it to the next level it's time to jump into reconditioning Um, there's lots of rumors about recession and challenge and difficult times ahead and if you want to bulletproof your practice be able to uh, manage the storm of some of these things that happen from an economic perspective be able to manage more clients a different kind of clientele and really have a more robust capacity bring in the world of applied neurology to your practice as well as that combination of therapy and performance. It really allows you to express the gambit of the different kinds of clients and client demands you might run into, which is going to make you more resilient, more capable of managing through something like a recession and being able to bulletproof your business. So we'd like to help you do that. Reconditioning has all of its course calendar out now. You can find it at www.reconditioninghq.com on the education calendar page, and we'd love to see you in 2023. Our main sponsor, Matrix Fitness, has recently launched its high school and collegiate development program. Customized to each group, these are two-hour workshops designed to support the busy teacher and coach in implementing modern training principles. These workshops are funded by Matrix and designed to address three areas. Simple, not easy, implementing strength conditioning in high school or collegiate settings improving multi-directional movement and coordination, and finally, putting the fun back into fundamentals, simplifying physical education in the weight room for all. Each workshop includes notes, session samples, and templates to help support implementation, as well as equipment and space assessment and budget allocation ideas to support programming. The workshops are all led by Wayne Burke, He's a former pro lacrosse athlete and 23-year veteran of training athletes of all ages. Matrix Fitness is a global brand of fitness equipment supplying and supporting organizations and athletes of all sizes and levels in their pursuit of improved performance. If you want more information on this program, then contact Wayne Burke, B-U-R-K-E, at matrixfitness.com. And if you want more information about the products and programs of Matrix Fitness, hit up matrixfitness.com today. Now that we've taken care of those that take care of us, on to the podcast. 
Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Danny Foley. Danny is entering his 10th year as a high-performance coach and injury management specialist and has predominantly worked with high-level military and athletes over the years. More recently, he's established himself as a fascial expert and released his marquee product, Fascia Chronicles, in 2022. Danny is currently the Director of Injury Restoration and Performance at Batchik Methods in Addison, Texas, where he specializes in severe injury management and return-to-play concepts for current and retired professional athletes. Previously, Danny spent six years as the head strength coach at Virginia High Performance, where he specialized in working with Navy SEAL, Navy Special Operations Command Personnel, and Navy Special Warfare Development Group. Through this work at Virginia High Performance, Danny has become very proficient working with complex injuries, brain injuries, and high-performing athletes within an interdisciplinary setting. He is also the co-founder of Rude Rock Strength and Conditioning, which is an online-based performance platform providing training and variety of education content to individuals worldwide. Over the years, he has presented both nationally and internationally on the subject of fascia, published nearly 100 articles, multiple webinars, and as predominant contributor as an author of The Simple Faster Organization. Above all else, he is also a husband and recently a new dad. I am pleased to have him on the show today. Welcome, Danny, and congratulations. Scott, thank you so much, man. I, I really appreciate you having me. I've, I've been a listener for for several years, so it's very <laughs> cool to be on this side of the fence. You must you must have worked with Vernon, then I guess Griffith. Well, I did did for a little bit, yeah, yeah, okay. Because when I saw the institution you were there, I was like, oh, they must know each other. Cool. So, where do you gr- where are you growing up, and what are you dreaming about when you're a little kid? Yeah. So originally, I'm from Northern Virginia. Um, and uh, I was uh, kind of born and raised in Loudoun County, Fairfax area. And then I relocated down to the Hampton Roads uh, initially to play basketball in college and then realized that, you know, I was very much a subpar athlete and I should probably focus on education. Uh, so I pivoted over to Old Dominion University and uh, it took me several years. But eventually we got uh, our bachelor's and our master's degree from, from Old Dominion. Um, I met my wife, Nicole. Uh, once I had relocated to the Hampton Roads and uh, her and I, you know, pretty much as, as soon as we met, we we kind of started dating and, um, you know, moved pretty quickly uh, throughout that process. So I had been in Virginia for 32 years. And last year um, at the end of the summer, you know, we made the decision to stepped down from VHP. Uh, Nicole was working uh, as an Olympic weightlifting coach predominantly. Um, at a facility called East Coast Gold. And, uh, you know, we stepped down from our positions and kind of just needed a change in scenery and, and needed to do something a little bit differently and, and wanted to try to pursue a couple of things. So we we landed on Fort Worth, Texas, and we relocated in August, had our, our daughter, our first child, uh, just two weeks ago, as you mentioned. And, uh, you know, now we're, we're kind of starting to get back into the work front and looking to put some things together. Very cool. So, as you're growing up and sort of playing sports, is there an influence from mom and dad to succeed at sport or succeed academically or are they pushers or are they pullers or are they watchers as your parents and, and as you're growing up? So you, I, I have a very good relationship with both of my parents. Uh, you know, my, my dad is my superhero. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, growing up, it was always, kind of driven by autonomy. You know, I feel like I had parents that were just very supportive of whatever it is that I wanted to do, but whatever that thing was, it was expected that we were going to do it at a high level. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess, you know, somewhat conventionally for, for, you know, for the most part, uh, mom was a little bit more influential on the education side. Dad was a little bit more influential on the sports side, but, uh, you know, I think it was a good blend of both. And I, I distinctly remember one day, um, I was probably about seven or eight years old and it was a Sunday morning. And I remember my dad would always take us to one of two places on the weekends. We would either be on a hike, you know, fishing outdoors, whatever, or we would be playing basketball, baseball, um, or at the gym. And I remember on this Sunday morning, you know, he kind of huddled me and my brother up and he was like, boys, this is our sanctuary. This is where we go. This is our place. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of like, you know, in that moment, I was like, okay, this is what we do. So I wasn't very good at anything else. So it made it easy, but that was definitely the catalyst for me to start kind of getting into the exercise science realm and, you know, credit to him. He, he did a, an exceptional job of, of continuing to expose us to different sports, different ways of training and different things. Um, so, you know, all in all, it was a really good foundation for me for what I'm doing now. Mm. What, um, when you, I lo- love the fact that you call him your superhero. What is it about him that, um, creates that image for you? What, is, why do you, why do you feel that way about him? Well, I, I would definitely start uh, by saying that, you know, actually yesterday uh, marked 27 years of sobriety for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so for for me, that was obviously fundamental for my development and for my upbringing. But, you know, just to see that type of discipline and then the transition that he had undertaken from that point, um, you know, really became a profound thing for me. And it was uh, you know, kind of through that addiction and the alcoholism that he, you know, had expressed a lot of extremism and a lot of, you know, hey, we're either all in or we're all out. And it was, you know, at the time, I obviously didn't understand this, but looking back on it, you know, he essentially took the addiction from from drinking and supplemented it completely for exercise, health and lifestyle. I mean, right. dude is a maniac. It, it, it is absurd <laughs> the way that he goes about his nutrition and fitness. But you know, again, I think even if we take the tangible technical side of that out of it, just having somebody to be a role model, to be very, you know, very much a great demonstration for me to see and live by uh, became everything for me. So, you know, it was definitely influential on the exercise side and the training side, but then also just in a life component, you know, I'm very outward and, and outcome driven. And I know that, you know, through watching him over the years, it's, it's just a matter of day by day doing what's needed to be done and staying committed to that process, whatever it may be. And then that will over time create exponential growth. Mm-hmm. So for my sake, it, you know, uh, because I have some of that extremism tendencies, I've recalled a lot more in my more recent years, you know, thinking back on him and just seeing how sometimes you have to just stay consistent with things and continue to push forward, even if it feels like the walls are starting to collapse on you. So mm-hmm. I had a really great demonstration from him and my mom as well. You know, I, I can't leave her out of this, but, you know, for her, it was always, again, more on the intellectual side and, and making sure that, you know, there was something that backed the sports all the way, you know, through the years. Obviously, mm-hmm. I was never somebody who was going to be pursuing a professional career, but I always prioritize sports over everything. So for her to always be that bug in my ear, hey, you know, make sure you're still doing all of your educational stuff. Make sure you're prioritizing your academics. Um, That eventually came full circle for me as well. And I feel like, you know, being somebody who had divorced parents from a young age, I was really in an opportunistic position to see 
the best representation of each parent. I felt like mm-hmm. I always got the best example from my mom and I always got the best example from my dad. And I always just tried to extract those traits and then turn them into, you know, whatever it meant to me. Mm-hmm. What was um, a, a semi, call it a seminal moment where you leaned on what you had learned from your father in a challenge that you ran into in your own life? Well, I mean, if, you know, if I'm going to be candid about it, it was, it was starting to kind of tip into some of that addiction and, and, you know, alcohol abuse and, and, and poor decision-making, you know, I've, Mm. I've been very vocal about this over the years, but, you know, I was a degenerate in college and I, I really messed up quite a bit and, and had, you know, not only just, uh, deteriorated in an educational sense or in an academic sense, but I had also kind of that became pervasive throughout other elements of life. I had become kind of disbanded from my friends. I had been disconnected from family. I was very isolated and very reclusive at the time. Um, I was dealing with a lot of, you know, mental, emotional things uh, and did not handle them well. But, you know, from 21, 22, 23 years old, I would say that I had pretty much messed up every fundamental element of my life. And then it Mm. became really my responsibility to kind of, you know, galvanize and repair a lot of these things. And I think the first thing that it started with was pure introspection. And at the time, I was somebody that was always clamoring for something outward. I needed to have a female in my life, or I needed to have a group of friends. I needed to have an event or something to do in order for me to feel any sense of comfortability with myself. So I actually ended up spending about nine months pretty isolated, um, you know, not really interacting with many people and just really started to dive inward. So I I remember one night I just kind of hit this tipping point and I just went and grabbed my computer and just started typing. And it was, you know, kind of this journal, you know, existential type of content. And, you know, I felt like at the end of that, I had kind of flushed everything that I needed to. And it was almost at that point that I was like, okay, now we have to start building. Mm-hmm. And that was when I started to kind of recall back on some of these things that I saw with my dad over the years where, you know, it was like, I knew that I was in a, in a shit situation, but I knew that there was going to be a process that I could get out of, um, or a way that I could get out of it. And all I had to do was just go one day at a time. Mm-hmm. So that really started to get me um, in, into a sense of maturity to a degree, but then also understanding that there's value in in small inputs over time. Mm-hmm. Obviously, at that age, this is nothing that's unique to me. We are very much instant gratification. We are very much driven by you know the immediacy of things. So it is difficult at that age to really have foresight. But those were the things that I were able to fall back on that helped me to develop that pattern. And it took quite a few years and, and, you know, definitely would not have been able to, to do that without the influence of my wife, Nicole, when she came into the picture, but it was a very rewarding process. And I think looking back on it now, um, those years of, of being, you know, kind of isolated and, and, you know, really messed up in a sense, um, were absolutely instrumental for me today. Mm. How did you meet Nicole? And, how does she come into your life? Yeah, so uh, I had applied to 44 different jobs. This was 2013. I had been kicked out of school, and uh, I'd just been fired from work uh, as a bartender. 
And I had applied to 44 places and I got a call back from two. Now, just for context, 44 places included things like Chili's and Best Buy and every anything, not just gym specific, but I had two calls back. One of them was from a One Life, uh, which is kind of like a gold gym in Virginia. And uh, I lied about being certified. They didn't check it. I got hired. I got very lucky um, and ended up getting in as a personal trainer. <laughs> and uh, so I started doing some personal training and and this uh, one of my coworkers and, and uh, you know, uh, now one of my good friends and business partners had uh, introduced me to Nicole, who was a part-time personal trainer and then a Zumba instructor. So all of a sudden I became very interested in Zumba dance and, and really started paying close attention. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, so she, uh, you know, we, her and I just kind of started to just, uh, you know, hit it off in a work sense. And, and, you know, very quickly I was, I was trying to make my impression and one thing led to another. And, uh, you know, we ended up kind of taking off from there. So, Nicole has been been so instrumental for me, and uh, she, you know she has been kind of the ground for me because I, I live in this ten thousand foot space of being idealistic all the time. She is more of my uh, my reality check, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But we work very well together, and it's cool because you know I I see her as not only just being a wife, but she's also very much a business partner and and a best friend, and we play those roles interchangeably very well. Mm-hmm. What is uh, what is it that you see in her when you say she is that kind of rock or that person that um, keeps you in check? What is it about her that um, is her personality that does that for you, that instigates that in you that maybe somebody else wouldn't in some sense? Well, the first thing about Nicole is is she is the greatest teammate that I've ever met in my life. And I, and I actually say that objectively because she is somebody who – um, is extremely committed to the betterment of the group and the outcome. And mm. she's very willing to sacrifice and compromise for the sake of that outcome on a more tangible sense. Again, I'm very idealistic. I think about things in, in optimal terms. And I think about things as, as probably being easier than they really are, um, mm. in terms of pursuit for her, she's very objective. She's very analytical. It's very, you know, black and white with things. And so for me, I almost, you know, started to just kind of filter things through her by default, where I would give her the big idea. She would rebut and tell me, you know, Hey, this is realistic. This is practical. We can do this now. This needs to go to the back burner. This is not going to happen. So then I just filter through there and then I adjust and then we go from there. So it's almost like this continuous calibration process where, you know, I'm kind of the 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 driver in terms of the ideas and she's the one that actually helps put them together and put them in play. Mm. How has that idealism in yourself served you and at the same time challenged you? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, I I am somebody who I would say generally has pretty high standards for myself. I know that's a very cliche thing to say, but, you know, I don't really, uh, I'm not really impressed by much. So for me, it's always like, you know, we're just doing what we're supposed to be doing. So what's next? What's next? What's next? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not to say that I'm dismissive to accomplishment or achievement, but at the same time, I'm always just going to follow accomplishments or achievements with, well, how do we do that more? Or how do we do that in a bigger sense? And I think that that is something that is 
good it's a good characteristic to have especially in an industry like like strength and conditioning um where the the pay is is traditionally very low the the job description is very rigid and constrained i'm somebody who's very defiant to that and i'm very defiant to to you know kind of the contemporary evaluations so i always want to just think about how we can push that bubble outward mm. and i think that that is something that is definitely been uh instrumental for me to uh this point in my career as for the negative side it has caused a lot of difficulty with expectation management and the mm. first area that that has really been um you know expressed is is as it applies to others so you know when i was back at bhp um and i was running that program we had a very small team and so i was very quick early on to kind of transpose my standard for things and my way of going about things onto others and it was very quickly uh you know realized for me that like hey we can't do that it's not you know it's just not the right way to go about things and not everybody lives their life the same way. This isn't the same priority for everybody. I take my work extremely seriously. It means a lot to me. And that's not the case for everybody. And that's okay. So sometimes, you know, for, for my own sake, I need to just kind of step back and remember to be objective with others and, and understand that I have my way of going about things. And that's not necessarily the way others do. Mm-hmm. What creates a, a sense of satisfaction in you then? I am driven by defiance and curiosity. Um, my my general goal or my my drive at this point has become focused on exponential reach, and I think that this is again, you know, just uh, something that's evident of how I feel about my profession. And this stuff really matters to me. I really, really enjoy what I do. I, I, I take this very seriously, and the, the the state or the quality of the industry is very important to me. So. Being this young and this early in my career, um, I'm just trying to contribute where I can, provide insight where I can, continue to learn, continue to grow, and continue to help people in any capacity that I can. So this is something that, you know, I I, I, I try to be very, very uh, considerate of. And any time that I've ever reached out to anybody, uh, Stu, Mike, Andrea Hootie, all of these different people in, in our field, Every single one of them has p- picked the phone up if I've asked and, and just listened to my dumbass questions and, and comments and, and they've given me the time. So it, because of that, it is really reinforced for me that anytime somebody reaches out to me for insight or for help, I'm going to do what I can to provide that. Hmm. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, I just want to help as many people as I can in the ways that I can. I think that it's really our fundamental responsibility to provide back whatever it is our skill set is. So whether you're an oncologist, you're a strength and conditioning coach, or you're a carpenter or a plumber, your fundamental requirement is to do what you can to improve the world around you with the skill sets that you have. And the way that I kind of summarize this is, you know, doing the work is the commitment to self sharing the work is the responsibility to others. Mm, nice. I like that a lot. What um, you met, you talked about the idea of call it managing expectations. Um, when you're connected in spirit uh, to the outcomes of the work that you're creating and what you're hel- helping other people, um, how does the challenge of not being able to help 
uh, affect you. Quick break here. We'll be back with our guest. In the last three years, the already powerful practice of reconditioning, which brings the worlds of therapy and performance together, has been upgraded with an integration of applied neurology. It now is one system that brings these three worlds together in a very powerful operating system that will turbocharge your practice. If you really want to change your practice, be able to take care of more clients and get better and more long-lasting results, we'd recommend you come and visit Reconditioning today and join the Reconditioning Revolution. It will change the way you practice. What do universities, colleges, municipalities, first responders, hotel guests, athletes, gym owners, rehab specialists condo developers and over 3,500 homes in Canada have in common. They all use Matrix Fitness Equipment to support their physical activity needs. Matrix is a global brand that recently celebrated its 20th anniversary and can be found in most local facilities in your community. For more information on how Matrix can support your goals, go to matrixfitness.com today. We're back. Enjoy the podcast. Well, I, I think that, you know, it, it's been difficult. I mean, I'll say that much because, and this is something that I'm sure anybody can relate to it. You're met with the reality of feeling like a failure, even if it's transient, mm-hmm. you know, if, if, if I come up short, whether it's with, you know, a training KPI or whether it's something, you know, in a marital sense or in a, in a family sense, if, if I come up short on something, I feel like a failure. I think what used to be uh, almost like a trigger for a depressive episode or for, you know, to be more of a downfall has now just kind of been more of a pause or a reflection point for me. Um, Mm -hmm. I I would say that for the most part, I don't really get dejected about things like I used to, but I'm still met with frustration. So for me, it it just comes back to the, the simple element of, forget the problem, find the solution, right? Or another one that I've, I've really relied on over the years is get past mad, get past angry. I heard something, I wish I could credit this appropriately, but I heard something one time, it was like a TED talk that was describing how anger is such a simplistic emotion. It's very primitive. Mm-hmm. And there needs to be a little bit more thought or complexity behind the explanation of emotion. So if I'm just met with anger abruptly, then I'm not thinking deeply enough on the matter. And I need Mm -hmm. to kind of just get past that primitive emotion and then let that funnel into something else, Mm -hmm. whether it's becoming more, you know, contemplative or whether it's becoming more investigative or whatever the case may be, just get past that primitive step of anger. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's been very helpful for me. And, you know, again, just really trying to orchestrate everything as being this continuum of problem solving has been enriching for me. And it's allowed me to really immerse myself into my career because, Whereas four or five years ago, I may have seen these as barriers or being or this transient failure. Now I'm seeing it more as, again, just, hey, this wasn't the right input for the outcome we were seeking. That right input exists somewhere. So now it's just our job to either find it or manipulate it into form. Mm-hmm. How, how did working with special operations athletes, so to speak, um, contribute to your personal growth and what did you observe or take away from those experiences? 
Well, the full list is is much more than we're going to have time for this morning. Um, <laughs> I feel tremendously lucky and grateful uh, to have had the opportunity and experiences that I did uh, through VHP. And it really starts with the man in charge, and that's, that's Alex Oliver, um, who is somebody who I, I've definitely seen to be like a father figure for me over the years. It was just the gold standard first person point of view education or apprenticeship really uh, for what true leadership and, and commitment to excellence looks like. I have had an unprecedented opportunity to work intimately with some of the most defined and decorated leaders in the history of the world. And, and you know, that, that that's an objective fact. Um, and I'm just very grateful for it. So there's, there are so many little taglines and things that I've, I've taken over the years from, from these men and women. But I think just to kind of summarize that, it showed me a few things. And the first thing is what a true commitment to excellence looks like. And it is just this continuum of chipping away. And it kind of ties into a couple of things that we've touched on here. But what I always noticed with them was this very steady neutral right? It was, there was never really too much high or too much low. If something great happened or if something terrible happened, it was really always fluctuating right at this level of neutral. And so for, for my perspective, it really was important for me to see that because I was always somebody to default to compartmentalizing or, or exercising extremism. And I know that a lot of these people have that exact same trait, but in probably even more of a magnified sense. So if they can temper, then so can I. Mm. So that was very important. Mm. I would say that the other thing that really stuck out to me is uh, just learning to be vulnerable and learning to understand that there's always a demand for collaboration. When you think about the, the essence or the nature of special operations, there are very precise skill sets, very precise body types, very precise character types. And each person, each individual has a very particular role or contribution for the greater good of the team. Mm. And this is something that's, you know, again, it's, it's trivial or cliche in nature, but when you see this in action and when you hear all these different stories of, of how these different events occurred, you take that and you apply it in a relative sense to your life and how it matters to you. So for my sake, this was where I really just became committed to this in interdisciplinary setting where once I had seen that in action and experienced it also on the VHP side, I, I just adopted this philosophy that, listen, nobody can optimize human health or performance in isolation. It can't happen. There needs to be multiple inputs because we are looking for a unified outcome that is going to require inputs from different angles. So you can apply that in a professional or in a work context, or you can provide uh, apply that in within a family, you know, setting or in a friendship even circle. So I think it's important to just really emphasize your role, your contribution, and what you can provide for the betterment of others, and then always being receptive to input. You don't always have to accept what's being told to you, but you should always give a genuine opportunity to listen. Because everybody that is in your corner or in your circle is is likely providing you things that are for the betterment of your situation, and they genuinely are trying to help you. So if you can't be receptive to that, then you don't have the right people in your corner. Mm -hmm. 
It's interesting because, you know, I've I've interviewed a few um, people in special ops, and um, I'm just curious, like, the public persona that people see is the warrior, so to speak. What is it? What is something you discovered? And obviously, I'm asking for a generalization, and it could be very unique as well, but um, about that type of human being or those people that that the typical person doesn't really recognize in them. I'm so glad you asked that. I had absolutely no idea what I was getting into. When I when I first got to VHP, it was all predicated on uh, you know, aspiring college athletes, club sports, you know, the occasional pro, whatever. Um, and then basically overnight they were washed out and this military thing was put in, and here we go. This is who we're training now. That was unequivocally the best way that that could have possibly come into form for me because it never gave me an opportunity to go watch a bunch of Netflix documentaries or watch a bunch of YouTube videos to see how to train. And, and it, 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 I would have been wrong, right? Mm -hmm. I would have fundamentally been wrong. And as I'm sure, you know, your reputation is extremely important within those communities and they gossip like middle school girls. So if you are great, they will spread that like wildfire. If you're not, they will also spread that like wildfire. Mm -hmm. So I think having that as my conception point really allowed me to just organically develop from those men and women, from those people firsthand. And it was, again, it was just very important for me that I didn't have any preconceived notions because it is a lot different than what we see or what's portrayed, um, you know, in the masses. I think the biggest thing that stuck out to me was the the diversity of character, you know, mm -hmm. and, and again, we we try to find this like uniformed or unified I, idea of what special operations or what special forces look like looks like. And the truth of the matter is it's extremely diverse mm -hmm. because it has to be because the problems that they're solving are so complex. Mm -hmm. So if you have 20 people that all think and do the exact same things, the exact same ways, those problems are not going to get solved. Right. So there's a lot of diversity to it. If we were to generalize that, I, I would say probably the biggest misconception is that there's this like unmitigated rah-rah intensity and, you know, the mental toughness crap that we see all the time, which is so misconstrued. Um, it, it just really isn't there. I mm -hmm. think that there's a lot of similarity to this population as there is with professional athletes. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, what they do, even though it is extremely, you know, theatrical and profound in our eyes, is just a job. And it's just a, it's a set of skills that they have become extremely talented with. Mm -hmm. But when they check out of that, when they're outside of those walls, they're just people, mm -hmm. just men and women that, that raise kids and have families and, you know, like to have a beer and go to the beach, you know, that, so it, it was just, again, it was very important for me to not assume that and being able to see it and then build my perspective off of that was, was really good for me. Mm. So the performance uh, industry has kind of its traditionalist sort of framework. And then there are people that sort of become innovators and drivers of uh, different thinking propositions. 
Um, obviously, you know, one of the reasons why I think Stu said you should reach out to Danny is, uh, you know, we probably share a similar kind of viewpoint of, of more of a holistic approach and looking at uh, all kinds of different elements that contribute to um, cause or, or issues that, that the athlete or the person in front of you is dealing with. But I'm just wondering, what was the initial instigator for you to... Um, to walk, to not walk the traditional line, but to start to look into other venues and and spaces, so that you could sort of develop your own sort of tactical approach to to what you do. So I would say two things, and the first one, the first part goes back to what I was talking about a second ago, in that I I screwed up my entire academic catalog in college. I didn't go to class. I failed multiple classes. I did not do well. I didn't take it seriously. So the first part was I literally didn't have the conventional input in terms of the academic development. I had to, I ended up actually learning the majority of my foundational knowledge through YouTube and Google and social media. Mm. And, you know, people kind of laugh when I say that, but you know, it, it's very true. It was Eric Cressy. It was Albert Mio. It was, you know, Joe DeFranco, Pete Bomarito, Mike Boyle, all of these people I just started to learn directly from them. So I would look at Eric Cressy as being like my anatomy lecturer or, or professor, um, you know, in a sense for that, for that time frame. And then the second part of it was back to the population at VHP where we, you know, we spent probably about three or four months, you know, when, when this thing initially started getting rolling and it didn't take very long to recognize for me, at least that, the conventional applications did not work. When you have athletes that have had multiple concussions, TBIs, three slap tears or rotator cuff tears, a, a hip labral tear, an Achilles, an ACL, and then just the general wear and tear of being an operator, listen, we can argue about it on Twitter all day long, but a back squat, a bench press, and a, and a deadlift and you know running sprints is not going to be conducive to that population, period. So that was when I started to kind of have these thoughts of like, okay, we are missing something. There needs to be something different about this. And we kind of started to turn the wheel on it. But then I had an individual who uh, wound up being uh, pivotal for all of this and for my career development in general he was coming off of a really nasty bout of thoracic cancer. And this, this gentleman was about 33 or 34 years old at the time, still active duty, still trying to, you know, get back into it. Um, but, and when he had gotten to me, they had to break his sternum, all of his ribs. And this was on his right side of his body, all of his ribs, his serratus, his lat oblique pec, they severed everything. So by the time he had gotten to me, there's very obvious atrophy, both in terms of the, you know, the size of the muscle and then also the, the function. So when I went home that day, I started looking into things and I came across uh, fascial slings. I'm like, okay, this is interesting. So I started digging a little bit deeper on that. And eventually that led me to Tom Myers and the anatomy trains rabbit hole. And I was like, Hey, look, if nothing else, this isn't going to work, but it's not going to make him worse. And I know that the conventional or the contemporary inputs are not going to work. So let's give it a shot. And it was wildly successful. We had about six weeks together. He, you know, did tremendously well. And, and we saw a lot of improvement so much so that I was like, okay, there's something to this. Let's apply it to somebody else and somebody else. Over a couple of years, we kind of started to really retool the system 
And then that was where all of the fascial stuff kind of was born. And then it started to kind of just tip into some other things and, and, you know, different styles of programming or schematics. And then that was when it caused or prompted me to kind of look back and, and investigate, like, how did we get to this point of evolution of strength and conditioning? And, you know, really what I was able to kind of to determine um, is that everything that we we develop strength and conditioning from is a derivative or a residual of either bodybuilding, powerlifting, or Olympic weightlifting, right? Mm-hmm. Again, another one we can we can go back and forth on forever, but none of these things were empirically designed for the sake of athletic performance. They are just the means or the modes that we have found over time that seem to be the best for applications for improving the traits of sport. I am now in the position where I think that there's just a lot more versatility to what we do. And I think that there is a lot more room for interpretation than we've been led on to believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I mean, I you're not going to find an argument for me because I fundamentally believe in the same thing. I mean, from my perspective, those, those spaces of strength and conditioning are, are the, godfathers of the industry but they are fundamentally a proposition for developing strength and not developing athleticism that they're they're you know and so they do very well to develop strength to do what it is you're doing directly but when you want to develop athleticism or human athleticism whether that's an athlete or the human athlete in whatever spectrum it it's deficient you know so you're not gonna you're not gonna have a fight with me on twitter that's for sure (laughs) (laughs) so um what makes like you obviously have this great experience in this space what makes you decide that you know you need a you need a different venue or a different space or to go to go reach out um and move like you had talked about earlier yeah, well, I think that I think at the top of it it was I was I've always been on the track for sports performance. And 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 I should just say the the athletic population. That's always been what is, you know, kind of sacred or sentimental to me. And as much as I love the military population in the tactical setting, um, you know, I had started to get a little bit more of that itch about getting back to the athletes. So that was a part of it. The second part of it, and I hope this doesn't sound as arrogant as it may, was I felt like I just had exhausted my challenges. Hmm. And I felt like there was a little bit too much comfortability for me where, um, and I loved everybody I worked with, but it, I never was really you know, challenged on what I thought. I never really had any pushback on things. It was, it was a very fluent environment, but it just felt to me that I was too young to be at that point. Hmm. And I needed to kind of see things from a different perspective and I needed a little bit of challenge. I needed some struggle. Hmm. So we actually moved out here, um, without any guarantees. I didn't have a job lined up. I didn't have, you know, I, I, one or two people that I had kind of started to develop some relationships with, but even that was fringe. Um, but I just wanted to see what we could do. And, you know, one of the mantras that I've always lived by is just aim high and make shit happen. If we, if you try to plan and forecast everything for, for the sake of your life, it'll, it'll just kind of keep you spinning your wheels in the same place. Eventually things require action. You just have to get out and go. What, 
what did you fall in love with and has that changed over time in what you do? I love the problem solving. Mm -hmm. I, I love the art of this person comes in with these sets of things or these situations and we have a defined amount of time to do what we can or apply what we can to improve those problems. That to me is definitely the most enriching part of what we do. I love independent people. I love people on an ind independent or an individual scale. I'm not a people person. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So I do enjoy, and there is fulfillment in the human side of this, but I'm very selfish. So I'm, I'm always going to tie things back to me. And I think in conjunction with the art of problem solving, I just want to continue to get better. Mm. And it doesn't need to be defined. I don't need a metric to it. I just need to continue to build and, and develop and do more. So I think I see each interaction or each endeavor as an opportunity for me to add something to my repertoire, whether it be just informational or insight or whether it be technical or tangible. I think that I'm always going to gather um, you know, something to help develop my perspective from anybody that I'm working with or spending you know, significant time with. And I think that every time we are able to go through these trials and these tribulations, it builds into a bigger picture. And, and for me right now, that picture is to just continue to expose myself to as many athletes and as many people as I can to try to get where I'm going. Has there been a particular athlete you've worked with um, that's um, contributed to who you are now? Like, uh, you know, obviously there are micro contributions, but have, has there been this phenomenal project that you worked on in, in essence that changed you in some way, shape or form? I'm not sure that anything sticks out in, in isolation there. Um, there were definitely a couple of people, um, you know, that were a little bit more pronounced through VHP. Um, you know, I guess, you know, actually that's not true. There is, there is somebody. So, uh, I had the opportunity to work with a gentleman. His name was uh, Rob Strasberger, and uh, he was in his 17th year of terminal cancer. Mm -hmm. And I started working with him in 2019. Um, and I have never been more unprepared for a situation in my life than I was for that. When I say unprepared, what I mean by that is I had been told that I had somebody coming in who had, you know, some significant cancer going on. Um, but that he was, you know, in good enough shape to train and, and, you know, quite literally within my ability or scope of practice. And I remember I walked in and it was, uh, it was my birthday. It was June 27th. And when I walked into the lobby, he was sitting on the couch and the had an oxygen tank next to him with a breathing tube in, he was passed out and his, his skin was, was just so oily and glossy and he just looked horrible. He looked really terrible. Um, come to find out he had lied on his intake forms and had kind of, you know, painted a different picture as to what was going on. 
But this was a guy who had been battling leukemia for 17 years. He had done two combat deployments. He needed waivers uh, to to go overseas while on chemo. Uh, and just, you, you know, you want to talk about the the epitome of, of a warrior. It, it is this man. Um, he ended up passing away uh, in August of 2020. Um, but I had a, a tremendous opportunity to spend about 18 months with, with him. And we, we walked all the way down to the last step. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I remember visiting him in hospice and, uh, it was actually the last time that I saw him. Um, you know, he couldn't really talk much. He was, he was exhausted and, and we just kind of sat there for a little bit. And, uh, I remember he had passed out and I tried to get up and, and kind of leave quietly to not awake him. And, uh, he just turned his head and he goes, Hey man. I love you. Thank you for everything. Well, and uh, <clears throat> and that was that was a pretty powerful moment. Um, <clears throat> you know, because again, you uh, you you set out to be a strength and conditioning coach or, or a physical therapist or whatever it may be at, at the at the forefront and you know, you think about athletes and you think about general population and you think about these things, you don't think about things like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is a part of the reason why I, I have such a ferocity for, for my profession and, and what we do, because as somebody who is just a strength coach, I had the opportunity to, you know, have that type of an, an experience or impression on somebody. Um, you know, and I think that that's pretty powerful. And Strauss was somebody who, taught me quite a bit and you know there's the obvious value of health and well-being and you know family life and um all of those different things but i think what he taught me was to just continue to push you you always have more in the tank and Mm -hmm. you know when i'm having, you know, shitty days or I'm tired or this or that's going on. you know, I just kind of think back like, man, I don't even know what tired feels like. I don't know what exhaustion is. And, you know, there's, there's so much more that we can do if we just continue to put one foot in front of the other. And you just don't really get caught up in, in the weight of things. You just continue to go. He was instrumental for me for that. And, and truly the gold standard of perseverance. Mm, Wow. It's good timing to read your uh, your purpose from my little book called The Day You Were Born. If you've listened to my podcast, you may have encountered me doing this. Um, you were born June 27th, you said? Yes, sir. So you're a Cancer 9. So your purpose is to use your power and your ego to break through the resistance and fears of others so that you can intimately share your world with them, always respecting their space and never forgetting your own goals and path. Egoist, a person with interest, more interested in himself than me, Ambrose Bierce. In Cancer 9, ego is all pervasive, especially if the moon succeeds and nurtures Mars' sense of entitlement. If Mars dominates, then the individual will be strong enough to stand up against the needs of others and do his own thing. The Cancer 9's challenge here is to keep their sensitivity and concern for others without letting it overwhelm their sense of self. They must, must not try 
to control someone else's direction or lose themselves in theirs. They have healer energy if they can keep their sensitivity, gifted with great magnetism, power, and sexual energy. Opposition attracts them. Early in life, they need to learn to protect themselves and then not to become bullies in return. Access is all too possible with Mars 9, but the only way they'll learn is by hitting a few walls. You're powerful, and sometimes you may forget just how forceful your energy can be. That is frighteningly accurate. <laughs> My God. <laughs> it's funny. I read it before. Sometimes I read them before, and I'm like, oh, you know, uh, I want to watch when I bring this in and stuff. And then I then I listened to you, and it was like, whoa, the, uh, you know, the things that, that you've talked about. And you, so I feel like I've... I've met you in a place where you've kind of recognized who you are and you know, you have to temper and manage it in some way. And you found a partner that does that with you in some, some ways is really kind of cool. That is wild. I've never heard that at all. And that is really, really accurate. <laughs> <laughs> with that with that regard, like um, how is the, the effect of becoming a dad affecting you? I have tried to go about this. Uh, it, we're going to pull on some taglines here, but a, the biggest thing for me um, was no expectations. I, I've just, I, every single morning I wake up, no expectations, everything from don't expect crying or not crying and poopy diapers or, you know, like, but in a more, you know, legitimate sense, I'm not expecting her to be an athlete. I'm not expecting her to be a doctor. I am trying to be exceptionally present at each moment, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think that um, it is the 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 traits that I really try to prioritize for the coaching side. I'm just trying to double for the father side, mm-hmm. and I'm really just trying to be of service, be of use. You know, whether that's a again a literal sense or whether that's you know in more of a philosophical sense. Um, I'm trying to be very present minded of not having Nicole feel like she's a stay at home mother. You know, this is a, a mutual, uh, op, uh, a mutual partnership and a mutual responsibility. And I really am just trying to appreciate everything for exactly for what it is. And, mm. you know, we're very, very early on in this process, but, but so far I, I think I'm sticking to that. It is, uh, it's a different experience, man. It's, um, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of similarity to the fatherhood as there is with the, um, you know, just the essence of marriage, where I remember prior to getting married, there's, you know, 10,000 people telling you everything that it's going to be, that it's not going to be what you have to do, what you can't do. And 99% of it, I just kind of brushed off like, yeah, we'll, we'll see. Right. And I'm doing the same thing now. Right. Like I, I hear everybody and I appreciate input and insight, but you know, I think that these are things that are indelible and they're very unique to you and, and how you live your life and how you develop your infrastructure at home. And, you know, Nicole and I have one of those really weird marriages where we actually like each other and we actually get along. Um, you know, so, so adding Layla into the mix is has been very fun. It's been fulfilling. And, you know, we're just trying to appreciate uh, the time that we have with her while she's this young because it's only going to be once. Um, and then just, you know, trying to learn on the fly, man. I mean, it's, uh, you know, for instance, you don't, you don't change a a diaper without having something underneath of her because it was like the fifth iteration that we had the projectiles, (laughs) um, you know, don't wear good shoes when you change diapers either. That's another one. Um, 
yeah. and we're just trying to continue to do what we can. And I, I think that we're going to, uh, you know, I think that we'll be very good fundamentally from a, a parental perspective. And, and, you know, we just want to continue to adore and love her every day. That's awesome. How, how does the, um, the genesis, well, let's step back a second. Cause obviously you've been, you've been teaching, you've been sharing, et cetera. Where does the uh, innate desire to share what you've learned come from in you? Because I needed it. Mm-hmm. I fundamentally needed it. Uh, I, I didn't, I did not take advantage of my schooling. I did not take advantage of my certification material. Um, and I needed Eric Cressy. I needed Joe DeFranco. I needed these people. Um, and it's because of their willingness to share that I'm sitting here having this conversation with you today. Right. Um, you know, in more of a recent sense, uh, you know, uh, our, our buddy Stu is, has been really kind of become like a, a, a role model in a sense for me that, you know, I look at him and Dan and, and Andreas and Altus, and, and I look at that as just being the gold standard of how to conduct yourself as a professional in this space. So I'm trying to do my best to emulate that. But I, I know that there are people out there that are very similar to me that have similar upbringings or stories. And I know that, that you know, I'm going to be able to provide that for a handful of people, which is extremely important to me. And that means the world to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, again, you know, it, it is a fundamental responsibility that we we impart on others. And I'm not trying to influence or, or you know, necessarily change anybody's opinions on things. I'm just trying to provide content that may or may not help people and, and let them take it for what it's worth. Mm-hmm. What's the genesis of rude rock? That is a, uh, probably the, the second best decision that I've ever made behind marrying Nicole. Um, you know, the quick backstory on rude rock is, uh, you know, I had initially kind of developed that for the sake of, uh, for, you know, business, um, uh, for BHP. And, you know, I'd had like an article, a bunch of articles and videos and blah, 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 put together. And, uh, you know, the timing wasn't right on that. So kind of got dismissed from DHP. Um, and I went home that day and I'm like, man, I just spent like three months putting all this together. I was so excited about it. And, and I was, you know, really gung ho on it. And I was like, well, you know what, let's just go ahead and buy our own domain name then. So rude rock, the ideology there is, is my, our two dogs at the time, Rudy and Rocky, um, that was the the motive. Um, so that became Rude Rock Strength and Conditioning. And let me say that was uh, it, it seemed kind of goofy or quirky at the time, but that was a a phenomenal decision by me because I've never met a human that I liked more than my dogs. And in in that moment, I had essentially immortalized both of my guys. Um, so I've always gotten a kick out of you know selling T-shirts to somebody in, in India or in you know Belarus or something and. Like, man, my dog's on a T-shirt in Belarus. Even if it's just one or two people, I think that's cool. Yeah. Uh, but initially, it had, started out, it had started out as just a hobbyist thing, just a, a medium for me to just get some thoughts out, you know, again, trying to help. And um, the first year, I don't think we had a single dollar in revenue. Uh, by year two, you know, we had a, a small chunk of change that was, you know, accumulated from there. And this past year, we did phenomenally well. Um, we're We're working with you know, people worldwide, we have, you know, our content's being viewed everywhere across the world. And, um, I, I get all these different awesome opportunities to link up with people like yourself for, for podcast opportunities and things. And 
you know, I think now this past year, we started to really see that, okay, we are becoming entrepreneurial. This really is becoming a legitimate business now. And there is, you know, we do have a good foundation here. So now at this point, and this is where it intersects with basic methods and, uh, you know, what we're doing here in Fort Worth. Now, what we are trying to utilize Rude Rock for is uh, really to reach professional athletes and retired professional athletes and, um, you know, just generally individuals who are embattling injuries and, and disease and dysfunction um, and really trying to, uh, you know, address those communities in the best ways that we can. So, you know, we are partnering with a couple of people down here and we're, you know, kind of putting together the, the different components to really try to emphasize those individuals. And I think that, you know, for the sake of development and performance, there are, there are a litany of people in the strength and conditioning industry that are doing that at an exceptionally high level. When we switch that to restoration and recovery, I don't think there's as many people that are doing as well. I think that that's more of a void in the current world. So over the last few months, I went through this process of trying to figure out who am I? What can I really do? What am I really good at? And I kind of backed away from getting back into the developmental side because I'm like, man, I've got this great history of experience through VHP. I've really continued to develop a very particular skill set. Let's continue to build on that. And I think that now what I'm seeing is that that was not only the right call, but there's a, a very serious need for this. And I, I just want to continue to help get people out of pain in the ways that, that I'm able to. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, for people who want to uh, engage in some of the things that you're doing, um, give me a sort of a, a Coles Notes elevator speech on what it is that you are, what are you delivering to people in, in your um, world today. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it really is just that, you know, and, and if we kind of, uh, tie a couple of different ends together here, um, you know, we are really starting to put more of an initiative on the, the coaching, the coach side of things or, or providing the, the information and the, the educational content. Um, you know, our first iteration of that was through the fascia chronicles, which is done, uh, extremely well. I'm, I'm, I'm super grateful for the, the level of reception that that's received. Um, so, you know, again, in falling in line with trying to replicate after the Altus model, we're trying to do that in our own way. And, you know, where, for instance, they're more focused on the, the speed and skill development and the sport performance side, we want to kind of fall in line and, you know, provide the same quality or types of content for the sake of restoration and injury management. Um, but the, the educational and the content side is, is very important to me on the tangible side and the, uh, the, 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 um, more day-to-day side, uh, my, one of my partners, Ryan basic at basic methods, we've kind of created this alliance or this, this merging of parties where at basic methods, they are working with, uh, severe adaptive individuals and, and athletes, uh, mostly uh, severe spinal cord injuries and, and uh, severe TBI head injuries. Um, and now I'm coming in and kind of bringing a new facet to what they have already developed, which is such a phenomenal program um, in that we are going to try to focus more on retired professional athletes. Uh, you know, right now the traction seems to be mostly on the football side, but uh, extending beyond that, anybody who has, you know, failed with conventional physical therapy or just been battling chronic pain for several years and, and you know, hasn't found a, a solution for it. Those are the people that we're targeting and that we really want to try to 
make an impact on. Very cool. You're going to perish from this earth one day, Danny, hopefully not for many, many years to come, but what do you hope you are remembered for or how do you hope you are remembered when that day comes? Better when I finished than when I started. Awesome. Um, I, I, when you spend, you know, several years being a piece of shit, uh, it gives you a really good opportunity for creating spectrum. So I know what it's like to be a terrible person very well. And, and I exercise that quite often. And since that point, it has been a concerted effort for me to just be a better dude, you know, in any way shape that that applies. It, of course it applies as being a husband, a son, a brother, now as a father, um, but also as a professional, as a coworker, as a friend, and as a human, as a member of society, you know? And I think that it's very important that you reserve judgment and, and you know, um, accusations within others until you really get your, your stuff together, you know? And, and kind of the, the mantra that I have there is, is always look in the mirror before you look out the window. Right. You know, don't don't look at other people for good, bad or otherwise. Just continue to focus on what you're doing and how you can apply different things or influence people. Um, and every single day, just find something or find some way to just get a little bit better and keep building towards that. Beautiful. Great way to finish. Thank you for your hours, sir. It was a pleasure to meet you. And hopefully we'll run into one another face to face one day in the future. Absolutely, Scott. I really appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.